We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's try this again, Courtney. Yeah, let's try again. <laughs> so we, just for people listening, we actually did record an intro and um, for some reason it didn't record. Probably user error, but... Nah, nah no, no, it's definitely not us. It's always the technology. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we've got over 30 episodes recorded, so it couldn't be us, right? No, we know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but anyway, this week we've got Professor Tim Colmer on the podcast. Yeah, so he is the vice cha- deputy De- chancellor. Deputy of vice chancellor, deputy vice chancellor of research. Yeah. <laughs> One of those combinations yeah. of words. Um, a really, really lovely guy who's also a, a plant physiologist, biologist. Um, yep. And works in that research area. So it's a really fascinating conversation. And you may think that uh, plant biology is not really related to public health or health in general, but we do relate it yeah. uh, eventually in the conversation. So the connection is there. There is a connection. Um, yeah, he's, he's a pretty down-to-earth guy considering yeah. how senior he, he is in the university. Uh, you wouldn't get the sense from listening to him speak that you mm. know, he was as, as an experienced academic as he is. But yeah, and we're now best friends, by the way, because um, <laughs> I actually bumped into him before we recorded this podcast without knowing um, who he was or without him knowing who I was. Mm. And then we bumped into each other again before the podcast. And then we bumped into each other after the podcast so we are now best friends so hi tim Uh, yeah (laughs) thanks for coming on (laughs) hopefully he enjoys the episode then (laughs) so yeah the the conversation kind of falls into two halves if you like so the first part is is probably a bit more about tim's work and uh, the sort of plant biology type stuff which is really interesting uh, but some of which went over my head because it's not my area but i think you had a bit more understanding around the genomes and the yeah yeah so my family are in plant biology um so well my dad is so understood a bit more but i think we are going to interject a little bit and have some explanations for some things because we there was so much to talk about uh, and so little time so i think it's there's some things that are we need to fact check and explain i think yeah yeah there's a couple of points where we might come in with some more information yeah um and then i kind of gave tim a bit of a grilling <laughs> about uh the various um, renewals and restructures and whatnot that UWA has undergone over the last few years. And um, it may come, come across that I'm being a bit kind of provocative, but I was, I was really more interested in just finding out Tim's um, kind of view on things because he's been at the university for 25 years. Yeah, and, and so he knows seen, what's happening. Yeah, and, he's seen know. a lot of changes. And one thing I was heartened by, because obviously a lot of people listening to this will know that they're, you know, our future is changing Mm -hmm. quite rapidly because of various factors um you know financial and economic kind of situation with COVID and whatnot um but it was heartening to hear tim was actually really upbeat and positive taking the positives out of some of the things that have happened with the renewal process over the last few years and Mm -hmm. acknowledging that you know there's a bit of frustration in some spots but there's also some good things that are happening so that was good um, yeah, so yeah. so keep in mind that there's kind of two conversations that happen throughout this whole thing. Um, but otherwise, please enjoy the episode. So I'd like to welcome Professor Tim Colmer to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> 
Now, some some of the people listening will, will know who you are um, because you're quite senior in the university. But for those who don't, do you just want to give a brief intro, your current role and your title? Yes, so I'm Tim Colmer. I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research here at UWA. Very good. And what exactly does that mean? <laughs> uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research um, means that you're the uh, senior executive on the research portfolio at the university. Mm-hmm. So a member of the executive team, but also um, responsible for research strategy, research initiatives, um, planning the future and um, making sure we uh, can maximise our research output mm. and success at the mm-hmm. university. Okay. And, and just briefly, obviously there's been a few changes at the university recently at the executive level. Uh, how, does that impact your position at all within the structure or has it changed anything for you? It's changed some of how we function. Okay. Uh, so, for example, there'll be much more interaction now directly with the heads of school mm-hmm. um, and some uh, components of the portfolio also will change slightly in terms of some uh, uh, units moving into the research portfolio, Yeah. Okay. such as the Public, public Policy Institute, okay. mm, for example, okay. will move into the research portfolio. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. The, the other... Um, major responsibility is also the graduate research school is mm-hmm. in the research portfolio. So the dean of the graduate research um, school is also um, part of that research Wait, team. who is that? It's Imelda. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. okay. Yes, yes, I yeah. have met her. She, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I uh, met her at the three-minute thesis thing. Okay. Yeah, she was there, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think she's actually due to give a seminar at our school about the graduate research school soon. Yes, so, yeah, that'll that's be very true. Yeah. Yeah. The three-minute thesis was excellent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Melda was the MC. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. why I remember. Um, yeah, she, she was a great MC. So, yeah, yeah it was good. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, so um, just a bit of uh, background to you, Tim. Whereabouts have you um, studied and, and what have you studied to get, uh, end up where you are now? Yes, uh, thanks. Uh, so I'm, I'm from Perth. And uh, went to high school here in WA. Mm-hmm. I went to Hollywood High School, mm-hmm. which is now absorbed into what's Shenton College. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, I came to UWA as a uh, undergraduate student and studied agricultural science. Uh, and for me, that was just fantastic because you got to do some some physics, some chemistry, soil science, animal science, plant science, economics. It was just a nice, broad mm-hmm. degree. Um, and, of course, I was interested in, in agriculture and food production. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was just fantastic, which I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, at the end of that, after I did my honours, I um, won a Hackett scholarship from UWA, which enabled me to go uh, or choose anywhere in the world to study. Mm-hmm. Um, which was just such a fantastic yeah, uh, that's really experience. Cool. How, yes. do you, how do you even choose? Like, <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, I, so I had a great honours supervisor, great mm-hmm. mentors as, as an undergraduate, and mm-hmm. so I discussed those options with Hank Greenway, who was my honours supervisor, and uh, he suggested a couple of places, and, and one of them was University of California at Davis, mm-hmm. um, so that's near Sacramento in the... In the, in the Sacramento Valley. In, so north, in the, north, north part of California. Yeah, inland yeah. From, Sa- uh, from San Francisco. Yeah. On the, on the road to uh, yeah. South Lake Tahoe. Mm. Yeah. Near the Napa Valley. So okay. <laughs> interesting. Pristine, yeah. Places yeah. to visit. Yeah, a lot of alternative cultures up that way, right? Uh, well, lots of, lots of agriculture, the food bowl of mm. US. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, also um, California's yeah, got good yeah. diversity uh, <laughs> yeah. in all sorts of ways. Yeah. yeah, landscapes, people, 
um, ways of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for me, that was really just fantastic because I'd never been out of Western Australia before I got that opportunity to travel for um, that PhD scholarship. Mm. So that was uh, an eye opener wow. for, for me. And Stopped off in Sydney for a few days, thought, wow, this is big, and then went to the US and thought, wow, <laughs> this is even bigger. Yeah. Did you land at LAX by chance? Uh, no. Th in oh. those days, you'd fly through Honolulu and um, land okay. in San Francisco. Oh, okay. That's a bit friendlier airport, I'd say, than LAX. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so after your PhD, or well, first of all, what was your PhD on? What did you look at? Uh, so my PhD was on salt tolerance of um, crops, and that was... Uh, again, a, a great experience because there was a very big agriculture but also plant science community at UC Davis. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was able to study um, cereals and crosses of wheat with wild relatives of wheat. So bringing in um, important stress tolerance genes. Uh, doing, I'm a physiologist, so studying plant function. Mm -hmm. And uh, being able to do that with crops, but then also interacting with um, people in the botany department who were doing uh, work on natural systems. So I was able to then also do some work on um, salt marsh plants whilst I was in California. So in the San Francisco Bay, looking at an invasive weed there, Spartina mm -hmm. um, marshes, and understanding why they were so successful in, in that flooded mm -hmm. um, and salt saline habitat. So right, it's quite okay. a challenge for most plants mm -hmm. to... Uh, live with salt, mm -hmm. but it's also a challenge for most plants to live with your roots in a flooded soil mm. Okay, because there's no oxygen in the soil once it's flooded. And right. Plant roots, just like us, mm -hmm. need oxygen <laughs> to respire. So mm. so most of my work has been on, on that. How do the roots function in those anoxic soils? Mm -hmm. And they have some good tricks to do that, yeah. as well as the plant adaptation to salt tolerance. Oh, very interesting. So yeah. how do you ultimately change genes in wheat crops to reflect the, I would call it phenotypes of whatever you want in the in the wheat. So how would you actually go about doing that? So, so here in Perth, we've got some excellent um, breeding companies. Mm -hmm. so, so there's been a long history of successful wheat breeding um, in Australia and particularly in Western Australia for our challenging environments. So... Um, bringing in new uh, germplasm or varieties. Uh, Australia's benefited a lot from its international agricultural research relationships. So, for example, bringing in new wheat lines from um, Simit in Mexico, so mm -hmm. wheats that come from other parts of the world, mm -hmm. obviously, or introduced into Australia, mm -hmm. um, crossing in those more drought-tolerant, more water-use-efficient genotypes, um, and then having very comprehensive selection processes, um, in first in small rows and in plots. But I, I'm not a plant breeder, <laughs> um, but our university has trained a number of plant breeders mm -hmm. who've gone on to prominent positions here in WA uh, in plant breeding in departments of agriculture and elsewhere in the world. Mm. So that's, uh, you know, you're making crosses, selecting, putting a selection pressure on, yeah. making genetic gains. The work I was doing in California was taking a, a wild relative of wheat where you have to um, make a cross, but then you have to do some cytogenetics to get a stable um, amphiploid. So it contains the full genome of both parents right. rather than a segregating genetics mm -hmm. um, as the first step to introduce uh, new 
genetic material into a into into the wheat mm-hmm. crop, as an mm-hmm. example. Um, but of course, nowadays with um, genetic engineering, um, with CRISPR Cas, and those other mm-hmm. modern techniques, yeah. which I'm not an expert in, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, you can target the genes. So yeah. identifying the traits you want and understanding which genes or sets of genes are responsible for those traits, mm. you can have a much more targeted approach these days. Mm. So, for example, the the materials that were produced that I did my PhD on um, had high salt tolerance but were not a bread wheat quality wheat. Right. It was a feed, could be used as a feed grain for animals. Oh, okay. But yeah. you couldn't mm-hmm. bake bread from it. Yeah. Right, okay. But that was you know, a very experimental approach of bringing in new new materials and that was mm. all driven mm. by a cytogeneticist at UC Davis, a guy called yeah. Jan Dvorak, who was a, he's a very famous yeah. um, cytogeneticist. Okay. So you know, when, I, when I arrived and saw what he was doing, I was Fan-feeling. able to go and collaborate <laughs> with him, which yeah. was yeah. fantastic. All right. So Tim has just said some words that I did not understand during this conversation. So he mentioned something about CRISPR-Cas and genomes and DNA and all of these kind of funky words. Uh, So I thought, Craig, that I might explain a little bit about what these kind of things actually mean and what they are. Yeah, and just to be clear, CRISPR is C-R-I-S-P-R. Yes. And I get spam emails about it all the time <laughs> yeah so uh, if you are in like at least medical research you get all sorts of weird junk emails um i've gotten some about CRISPR as well uh but what i didn't realize i thought CRISPR and cas were two separate things turns out it's the one thing and just so um people know my pronunciation of cas is actually C-A-S, not C-A-Z. I do pronounce my S's and Z's very weirdly. Uh, Anyway, so CRISPR-Cas is actually a piece of technology that allows scientists and researchers to pull apart pieces of DNA and insert other bits of DNA from like foreign foreign bodies or invaders. Uh, It's really interesting. So originally all of this kind of came about because they were looking at some bacteria and they noticed that in the bacteria there was repeats of these DNA sequences. But it wasn't just repeats, there was like these little bits of information in between the repeats. Now the repeats is what um, is now named a CRISPR. So CRISPR is a part of like a DNA sequence that's repetitive. And then there's the little bits in between are called spaces. And those spaces are actually already bits of DNA that's foreign. So that's when like a piece of virus, like a virus or something has attacked this bit of bacteria and inserted its DNA into its DNA sequence. And what CRISPR-Cas can do is it uses those repeated sequences, the CRISPR, and then it gets a Cas protein, which can cut bits of DNA at any position. So what then happens is we can cut the DNA and we can put our own bits of DNA in there, so our own foreign bits of DNA, um, meaning that we can basically adjust the DNA sequence and create phenotypes that maybe not are typically seen in plants or bacteria or things like that. So really interesting piece of technology. Mm. And so this could maybe change the properties of a, of a plant or make it able to survive in conditions that wouldn't normally be able to. That's right. So, for example, with Tim's work and the whole salt tolerance thing, we can 
get, figure out what the gene is in a different plant to make them tolerant to salt, we can then take that little bit of DNA sequence and go, hey, I want it in this plant. We put it in where the spacer or the previously um, foreign DNA is. We put it in there. And then eventually that will get passed down uh, through all the baby plants and the new plants might be able to express that gene. Yeah, okay. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah I'm glad that you have clarified that for me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I hope, I hope uh, yeah, it was interesting for other people. Yeah. I got sucked into it. I like read about it for like two to three hours. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll let Tim carry on telling us about the rest of his work. Sounds good. Do, do you have much knowledge about the work going on in the space where they're trying to either breed gluten out of wheat products or, or change the structure of the gluten for people who are gluten intolerant? And I ask this because I am gluten intolerant myself. Um, I don't have a detailed, I haven't looked at that in detail, but I'm aware that it's been a very successful program, I think, by CSIRO, isn't it? They're uh, working on that. Mm. Um, and uh, I've, you know, I've just seen in the media that they have had some success, but I mm. haven't followed closely what, what mechanisms they're using to do that. Yeah. That might be what I read this morning. I was just talking to Craig before um, we, we got here about an article I read this morning about Australian wild grass that can be used as a substitute for wheat and it doesn't have any gluten in it and i think there was like some something that we're doing in australia about that mm. um as a potential pathway instead of wheat um yeah mm. so i think yeah. both are happening there's yeah. some work to um reduce or, get, or remove the gluten mm -hmm. by, yep. by knocking out i guess that gene or genes involved yeah but also yeah development of alternative crops yeah. um mm. domestication of new new crops mm. yeah because there's been a bit of work done by people who look at the, how the wheat's evolved over the years, the different strains, and they go back to old strains of wheat and s some people are fine eating those products, but then as, as we get into the more modern strains, they then have an adverse reaction. That's right. So it's interesting to see, you know, how it evolves and also what happens next, yeah. And, and wheat is fascinating. Um, for those geneticists out there, <laughs> bread wheat's a hexaploid. Right. So, so um, when you look at the evolution of wheat, there were two grasses that crossed and retained the genetic material of both parents, so it didn't segregate. So it was a genome doubling, mm -hmm. right? And then that was a tetraploid. That's pasta wheat. Right. So that's durum wheat. Durum wheat, yeah. Okay. And then there was another wild progenitor that then crossed with that pasta wheat, which is now a hexaploid, that's a bread wheat. Okay. Huh. And then the plant I studied in my PhD was another cross of a wild relative to make an octoploid. <laughs> so you can imagine the complexity of the genetics when yeah. you've got you've got um, you know, yeah eight sets sets of the genome in in the in the plant. So mm -hmm. how can you tell that there's eight sets of genome? Because like the yeah. I have very basic level like <laughs> DNA structure and genomes and all that kind of stuff. So I imagine the the double helix uh, with all the thingies on it. Um, I'm assuming it's just not eight lots of them that you find in there, or is it? <laughs> yeah, so... so um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough so question. <laughs> the diploid's got, you know, two sets of chromosomes that match up. Yeah. And so inside genetics, they do root tip squashes for plants. Yeah. Because there's a, you know, concentrated small cells. Uh, you stay in the uh, chromatin and you can actually count... Right. Um, you know, how many chromosomes are in the in the cells? Mm -hmm. So that's um, yeah, cytogenetics, chromosome counts. Yeah. And now you can, you know, for example, you could grind the tissue and do it through flow cytometry and and 
get an estimate of genome size. So there's more modern techniques now. Right. But originally all that was worked out by um, yeah, observing chromosomes, dating them and um, counting them and looking at their structures, mm. lengths and assigning numbers to the different chromosomes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm assuming the difference between these crops is mostly in how they're used, so the, the physical properties. So durum wheat's going to have different, you know, um, reactions when you bake it or cook with it to yeah. what, you know, the, the bread wheat does. Yeah, so different yeah. different um, qualities of the grain, mm. um, but also in terms of from what I'm interested in, it turns out that the um, durum wheats are, are much more salt-sensitive than okay. the bread wheat because it, that third progenitor that came in to oh. make bread wheat actually carried with it some important um, genes for salt tolerance, which mm -hmm. was all about keeping sodium low mm -hmm. and taking up enough potassium from the soil. So managing those sodium ions in the, you know, in seawater. Yeah. Mm. And, and geographically, are there certain countries that are more prevalent in a particular type of wheat or that they're known to grow a particular type more than other places? Or um, Yeah, there are. Um, in terms of WA, we're well known for our premium um, wheats, our bread wheats, but also uh, we're well known for our speciality in noodle wheats. So... <laughs> Uh, noodle wheats, that's weird. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. it's a really interesting story. Yeah. Mm. Um, one of the local breeding companies here interacts very closely with the noodle masters in Japan and we export, if you go to Japan and eat udon noodles, you're probably eating West Australian <laughs> wheat. Okay. Um, we export a lot of uh, our noodle wheat um, mm -hmm. and in particular udon with that particular texture mm -hmm. and colour which is important for the, the market, is coming from Western Australia because yep. of our um, growing conditions, but also our varieties and the expertise of the, the farmers to consistently produce that quality. Mm -hmm. So crosses are made here. They select on certain traits. Um, but the ultimate test is the udon noodle master, and I can't remember the Japanese name for that, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, will come. They will make udon noodles in the lab here, and he will... <laughs> taste and feel the texture, feel how it is in the mouth and say, this is the one for the market. Right. Interesting. Wow. What a job, though. <laughs> you get to come over to Australia and eat some mm. noodles, decide the best one, head back. It'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and is it, within Western Australia, are there particular wheat-growing regions that specialise in one or the other that have, a, have the right climate? Uh, there, yeah, there are, and and also growers that specialise in, in those markets. There's a premium price, obviously, mm -hmm. for that um, udon noodle-type wheat. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to get all your growing conditions, your, your protein levels, everything has to be yep. um, well-designed and, and well-looked after. So yeah. it's it's a it's a whole of ecosystem, I think, approach to value-adding um, yeah. for that exp particular export market. I've just been up in the Midwest this last weekend, so I drove you know, past Geraldton and up to Calberry. Um, what sort of wheats would be grown up there? Because there were a lot of wheat fields by the looks of it, <laughs> compared to sort of further south <laughs> in the wheat belt, you know? Uh, yeah, so it's hard for, it's hard for me to yeah, give you specific you on the spot. variety names. <laughs> yeah. um, but what that northern region of the wheat belt's well known for also is um, uh, the growth of some of the lupins on the sand plain country, as well as the, the wheat. And also uh, the adoption of other um, things like they they tried chickpea a while ago to get mm -hmm. diversity into the rotations. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's with a view to things being sustainable going forward. You know, 
the way the soil gets managed and the nutrients in the soil and that sort of thing? Yes, so um, crop rotation is important for that reason to mm -hmm. make sure that... So there's a, there's a rotation with legumes mm -hmm. uh, which fix nitrogen. Okay. So the lupins, the chickpeas, but also sub-clover, um, subterranean clover uh, and other pasture legumes are putting nitrogen residues back into the soil that the following wheat crop can benefit from. Yep. But also a disease break. So root diseases, if you go anything, you know, wheat, 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 or you went canola, 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 or whatever, chickpea, mm -hmm. chickpea, chickpea, um, the diseases build up. So you need mm -hmm. to break um, okay. that and put in a, a cereal followed by a broadleaf. Mm -hmm. And also for weed management. So okay. if you can imagine if you just started, if you kept growing mm -hmm. wheat, you could probably control your broadleaf weeds pretty well because mm -hmm. wheat's a grass, but you will not be able to control your grass weeds very well. So you have to rotate so you okay. can spray out your broadleaf weeds when you've got a wheat crop and spray out your yep. grass weeds when you've got a broadleaf yeah, okay. crop. So they're selective herbicides. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You, yeah, I'm sure it's like a whole... <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very sciencey. <laughs> now, yeah. aside from this vast knowledge on plants, uh, you also do some teaching, is that right? I, I, yes, I have been. So yeah. I started at UWA in 1995. Um, as a teaching research academic and teaching has been a you know, great part of the job um, and also really important to, uh, you know, to help motivate future generation of scientists but also feed in excellent undergraduate students into student projects and mm -hmm. you know, um, honours projects, PhD PhDs, projects yeah. as well. Yeah, okay. So I've taught, um, well, firstly, I second year plant physiology has been the main thing that I've been teaching to a diverse range of degrees. So agriculture, botany, natural resource management, others that are interested in those mm -hmm. degrees. Third year plant ecophysiology, of course, with colleagues, we team teach mm -hmm. all these units. Yeah. And then uh, first year biology okay. as well in collaboration with the animal scientists so mm -hmm. that there was plants and animals and fungi and other things in those units. Mm. And more recently, the Master for Ag Science, um, a large number of international students, yep. uh, as well as Australian students interested in that Master of Agriculture. So mm -hmm. um, looking also at international agriculture, different systems around the world yeah. uh, in terms of what people are growing. Okay. Interesting. And you, and you do a bit of postgraduate supervision. You have some students doing yes. PhDs yeah, and whatnot. I, I've, I've um, been really fortunate to have a great, um, set of PhD students over many years. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, I think there's two that have just recently passed their PhD this year. Exciting. Great. And there's yeah. just a couple more, which I'm still working with. Yeah. But I haven't taken on new students for, for a little while because of this okay. other role. It's quite busy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and are, are there any notable PhDs that have come out of that that, you, that sort of stick in your mind where, where they made sort of groundbreaking kind of Probably your favorite findings or, most interesting. <laughs> or, or things that were particularly interesting? Um, so uh, they've just been a diverse of, diversity of, of course, people and, and topics, but mainly all around that stress physiology. Okay. So um, some students have worked on Australian halophytes. So they're the plants that grow naturally around our salt lakes. Okay. Um, and there's a huge diversity of um, bi biodiversity of Australian halophytes. When you go out to a salt lake, you just mm -hmm. see these plants, but mm -hmm. there's actually a, yeah. a big diversity there. And that, that's, that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. A lot of work, again, on wild relatives of wheat and some additional ones. So we 
worked with collaborators to bring in some even um, more novel genes into into wheat, um, and um, quite a bit of work on rice. So going back to um, these plants with roots in flooded soil, mm-hmm. uh, we've done quite a bit of work on rice with a number of students and looked at how oxygen moves into rice plants and how it gets moved and transported down into the roots and mm. so that the roots, they have a snorkel. So every time you see a rice plant or a salt marsh plant, you can think about them having snorkels, just <laughs> like when you go scuba diving, mm-hmm. um, so that the oxygen's um, able to reach the roots. Mm. Interesting. So that I imagine there would be a bit of collaboration with Asia on that because there's obviously a big demand for rice yeah. over there. Uh, does, does, does Australian rice make its way over there? I mean, do we grow enough of it? Uh, so we, we, as a nation, we grow a, a quite a small amount of rice and mm-hmm. high-quality, again, rice, so New South Wales, and it's also been test tried up at um, Ord. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't export a lot of mm-hmm. rice, um, but we do have this interaction with scientists. Um, for example, at Erie, I don't know if you've heard about the important... Um, CGIAR centres, so these are the international agriculture centres. Right. Okay. Here is the International Rice Research Institute. It's okay. in Los Banos in the Philippines. Okay. Um, and so, for example, we've been there and collaborated with them and um, done lots of joint research. Uh, and probably I, my first work on rice was as an honours student, mm-hmm. looking at how it could cope in these flooded soils here at UWA. Uh, and then when I started as a staff member, one of the, the professors here, Hank Greenway, again, was running Crawford workshops, which are international training workshops. So I was able to go with him and we did some experiments in Thailand as well as um, holding seminars and workshops and we worked with um, scientists from Thailand and Vietnam and other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually ended up publishing a paper from that work, which was great to be able mm-hmm. to do some of the work actually in, in the place where there's so much rice growing. Yeah, yeah. Nice. interesting. <laughs> so what are the things in rice that make them able to survive these floods? So obviously snorkel. So in in my mind, I'm imagining this like rice plant with like something that looks like a root kind of popping up out of the water. Is that what it is or is it something else? Uh, it's, it's slightly different. So, okay. so what you're imagining is like a mangrove. Yeah. Where you see the pneumatophores, those vertical lateral roots coming up mm. like little snorkels out of the mud. Yeah. So that's a similar mechanism. Okay. But there they're clearly snorkels, right? Yeah. Um, in the rice plant, uh, they have lots of roots which form from the base of the stem. These are nodal roots. And they are interconnected up into these big gas chambers chambers in the leaves, in the oh, sheaths, okay. into the stem. Right. So there is a snorkel in there, you just can't see it, and it's not as obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a rice root mm. is can be 45% gas base. Mm. Okay. So if you do a cross-section and you can see, you see these big channels all around the cortex and the yeah. um, oxygen diffuses down those roots. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then the rice gets submerged. And then it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the air would stay in there and, yeah. yeah. But imagine you're a rice plant. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and you're submerged. Yeah. During the daytime, the shoot is photosynthesizing, it's producing oxygen. Yeah. 
and a lot of that oxygen's moving down to the roots. Mm -hmm. yep. Then the night falls. Mm -hmm. There's no photosynthesis. Yeah. So the rice plants... <gasps> Holding its breath. Hold their breath. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day, the sun comes up and poof, yeah. oxygen everywhere. Yeah, okay. So um, uh, what the scientists at Erie have been looking at is when those rice plants get submerged, there's a, there's a certain gene called the sub-1 gene and they just sit and wait. They don't expend their energy. If it's a short-duration flood, they don't elongate. They sit, they survive, they have enough energy, they can survive. The water goes down, they regrow. This is called sub-1, and there's now um, sub-1 rice growing across millions of hectares in mm. India, for example, where mm -hmm. they get these flash floods, floods of a week or so. Whereas deep-water yeah. rice, if it's sitted and waited, where the the water level's risen for months, then mm -hmm. it would die. So what deep water rice does is it just elongates very quickly, gets oh. its head above water, the stem's very porous, and then oxygen can come down like a snorkel again. Right. Yeah, okay. So there's different rice ecotypes depending on the, mm. yeah, the hydrological regime. And I suppose this type of science is really useful from a public health perspective for food security around the world, particularly in sort of developing countries, isn't it? It is, yeah. definitely. Um, Australia uh, has, well, what I said, the Crawford Fund that helps um, develop skills in um, developing countries, mm -hmm. but also ACRI, ACR, sorry, ACR, Australian right. Institute for Agricultural Research, which is all about international research in agriculture with our um, neighbours and other areas of mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And there's been recent studies that show a 10 to 1 return on investment mm -hmm. for research in agriculture mm -hmm. in terms of um, improving people's lives. So food security is the first thing mm -hmm. in making sure people can have a decent life. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. You know, it's a big challenge. Like WHO is always talking about it and yeah. mm. the World Bank and, you know, it sort of cuts across many governments across the world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, many governments, um, also private donors, Gates Foundation, mm -hmm. also do, do a lot in terms of international agriculture. Mm. Um, and UWA has a tradition of um, collaborating with, for example, ICRASAT, which is the International Centre for Agriculture in the Semi-Arid Tropics okay. um, in Hyderabad in India, which I've had the pleasure of going to a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of collaboration for joint research looking at, in that case, improving chickpea, one of the major grain legume um, mm -hmm. foods. Uh, we've mentioned Simit in Mexico, the Rice Institute in Erie. So there's a number mm -hmm. of these mm -hmm. um, uh international centres which our government and other governments contribute to mm. which make a big difference around the world yeah mm. interesting and, and i guess in like the overall umbrella of all of this grains and legumes are from my understanding one of the biggest um, food things that we eat around the world um so the idea behind improving it even on like the genetic level and all that kind of stuff means that we can feed more people in general and it can be cheaper and all that kind of stuff mm. so kind of the work that you're doing um and your group does that all influences how we can improve our food journey i guess mm. yeah yeah so agricultural science is generally do that they yeah. all contribute to that yeah, yeah. so our, our group makes a small contribution um uh, towards specifically that understanding of that uh, flooding submergence tolerance mm. um 
which has been good. It's a bit of work on salt tolerance, which we've done, for example, with Icrasat on chickpea, um, and that's moving forward in terms of uh, the way they're trying to improve salt tolerance. Uh, but more generally, yes, uh, mm. that's the goal of agricultural science. In mm-hmm. here, not only for food security, but also to underpin a v- really important industry. Um, agricultural exports for us uh, mm-hmm. still a huge part of our yeah. um, terms of trade and, and people sometimes forget, uh, mm-hmm. I think, how much uh, value there is and how much um, business there is in agriculture. Yep. There's a lot of money changing mm-hmm. hands and food mm-hmm. trade. Yeah, definitely. We're a very mining focused economy, but yeah. It seems like agriculture might get forgotten in that a little bit at times, mm. but it's still a really substantial part, isn't it? Yeah, a couple of years ago when I last check, uh, checked, wheat was still the second biggest export mm. from Western right. Australia. Yeah. Uh, we'd, have to, we'd have to fact check. <laughs> <laughs> so Tim has suggested that we fact check his claim that wheat is the second biggest export earner for Western Australia. Uh, so it's, could, it could be true if you group together the top minerals that we export, um, but when you separate them out, wheat is actually the sixth biggest money earner for Western Australia in terms of exports. Um, so iron ore is first with $101 billion a year as of 2019-20. Uh, second is petroleum at $31 billion. Third is gold at $21 billion. Alumina, which is the rocks that they make aluminium out of, is $6 billion. Uh, nickel, $4 billion. Then you have wheat at $2.8 billion in sixth place. Uh, and then after wheat, you have education, which is a another major source of export income for Western Australia, which is $2.1 billion a year. Um, but we'll let you carry on listening to our conversation with Tim. <laughs> I've got a friend who works for CBH, so I could ask. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I guess... It depends on the rainfall. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> the protein content. Yeah. <laughs> in, and in Australia and other parts of the world as well, that salt tolerance is also really important in our plants, particularly when we're growing things to eat. Um, And that's because like we're going through a drought and salt's increasing um, more on the surface and things like that. So I guess, what does your research kind of say how how we can improve our plants in that? So like, how how do you actually do that research and what have you found so far, I guess? (laughs) Yes, Um, so so we have found, so so we're lucky again in nature, Mm. we go from plants which grow in seawater through to plants which just have to be growing in fresh water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's about 1% of all of the plants on the world can grow in seawater. They're mm-hmm. called the halophytes. Yeah. So we, can, we know clearly what the traits are, what mechanisms there are, and more recently, because of you know, molecular biology, molecular genetics, there's been identification of a number of genes that are responsible for those traits. So there has been some successes in improving salt tolerance um, of some crops, uh, but to within limits, right? Yeah. Not not so that you can grow them in the ocean, um, <laughs> but improving the tolerance. Uh, so I think we need to make use of those wild relatives, those wild donors of sets of genes, as also, also make use of the modern molecular genetics to mm-hmm. be able to um, test which genes do work well in a wheat or in other crops yeah. to move forward. Um, my work's been on yeah, those sources of wild relatives and what might be good donors for certain traits. Um, that's quite basic. That's quite far removed from what happens in the paddock. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we've also worked on selecting um, foragers because saline land, which becomes too salty for cropping, of course, can be used to grow forage for um, animals, ruminants, yeah. such as sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, sheep are little money-making machines <laughs> that walk around mm. paddocks, right? Yeah. Because yeah. uh, they produce wool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so uh, in Western Australia, for example, there's been a, quite a, a, a large history of revegetation of salt-affected land um, with with species that are able to be grazed, mm-hmm. um, which means that then there's an economic um, stimulus or at least money mm-hmm. to yep. use to do that revegetation because that's the challenge, right? Right. Having the funds to, to revegetate. Yeah. So it has to have some economic out. Yeah. And the revegetation also gets rid of the increased salt in the land as it, well. It does. Yeah. So something like um, salt bush, you might see um, uh, atroplex, which mm. can be grazed by sheep in combination mm. with other. That was also on last year's MasterChef. Because oh. we can eat salt bush, right? Uh, it's now trendy to Yeah, yeah it's now trendy. Yeah, I think it was yeah. on MasterChef. I saw it as like a little garnish <laughs> or something, yeah. Um, also <laughs> in Europe, they yeah. eat salicornia, the little stem succulent. Oh, like uh, yeah. Okay. Sort of boiled. Yeah. Um, that's a, also another halophyte. Yeah. Quite mm. salty, but sweet and salt mixed together yeah um yeah the salt bushes are perennials so during the summertime uh they are transpiring water mm-hmm. out of the soil the water table is getting lowered mm-hmm. um so it it manages helps manage the salt by lowering the water tables and then the rain can leach salt okay. further down oh, okay. and then you can introduce um some less salt tolerant species between those mm-hmm. rows of salt bush right. so there's some really really good combinations of halophytes and more traditional mm. salt-tolerant pastures. Again, getting some legumes, get some mm-hmm. nitrogen fixation, mm. um, high-quality feed mixed with that salt bush. Yeah. So good examples if you go drive out to Kalgoorlie, mm-hmm. drive through Taman, you'll see quite a lot of areas which have been revegetated um, with uh, salt bush. Mm. Interesting. So um, it would be interesting to pivot for a second and to talk about matters a bit closer to home at UWA and... Um, your role as the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research, and particularly we sit in the School of Population and Global Health. Um, we used to be under the... Well, I guess we're still under under the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences and for the rest of the year, and then I think that has been done away with. What What's your engagement... What, how do you foresee your engagement with those schools in those health sciences areas and your role as the as the um, DV of research, yes. DVC of research? Um, so our engagement... Uh, happens at various levels. So individual researchers uh, developing proposals or um, centres bids. So they'll interact with um, my office and also the Office of Research uh, and they'll get assistance in um, developing those bids. Uh, We'd like to make connections, help help with um, partnerships. Um, so we'll continue to interact with researchers mm-hmm. um, who are submitting proposals. But I think there'll be increased interactions with the heads of school. Uh, and we also will need to um, redesign how research committee works to make sure that we've got a, a mechanism that covers the interests of the various schools at the mm-hmm. university, because that currently does happen through um, the associate dean's research and a faculty-based rep, so we'll have to... Yeah. Um, rejig the research committee. And what is the research committee responsible for currently or what has, has it been responsible up, up until now? Uh, so research committees are helping with the development of strategy. So mm-hmm. we've been 
going through a strategic planning process that started last year in terms of the, the main um, pillars of uh, what we want to do for Vision 2030 at UWA, mm -hmm. um, which was um, Indigenous knowledge and health, for example, was a main pillar, mm -hmm. collaborations a, a pillar, Mm -hmm. excellent research infrastructure, and I'll, I'll come back to that because <laughs> yeah. that's of direct relevance for health yep. Yep. Um, as well as other areas, but there's some really good things happening in the health space. Um, uh, big data um, and also um, trusted and reliable research. So our research repository, um, the management of our data that um, the library helps us so much with, mm -hmm. um, the UWA library. In terms of the infrastructure, uh, UWA has been very active in NCRIS, which is the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Strategy. Mm -hmm. So we're hosting, for example, the NIF, the National Imaging Facility. And in the last funding round, um, UWA in partnership with the other universities in WA um, and also the Perkins Medical Research Institute, for example, uh, WA government mm -hmm. uh, have been working on and, and um, Sarich Neuroscience, have been working uh, to get a new human MRI. So we'll have our first research-dedicated MRI oh, cool. imaging and also um, we're hoping soon to make sure we can secure PET-CT um, to go along with the other imaging facilities that we already have. Mm -hmm. um, working with TKI and Perkins, mm -hmm. there's a new genomics WA. So that's a new um, genomics facility that's available for researchers to, to access and not only the researchers from our organisations, but it's a national collaborative right. uh, facility so that any other researchers can also come and access. Of course, mm -hmm. there's some charges to do that because <laughs> it has to be sustainable. You of have course. to be able right. to pay for your consumables and other things. Yeah. Um, electron microscopy, we're about to install two new cryo, um, a new cryo suite, so new, two new cryo electron microscopes here at CMCA just above us yep. in this building. <laughs> okay. um, and that's also exciting for yeah. uh, material science, but also for biological researchers to be able to do high-quality cryo, SEM and mm -hmm. um, TEM. Mm. Um, and there's some other infrastructure as well, metabolomics, mm -hmm. proteomics. So it's an exciting time yeah. in terms of building our yeah. research infrastructure. And yeah, I, I heard... Um, Big data is one of the things as well. I, both of us use uh, linked administrative data, so that's also a big deal. So what's happening with that? Yeah. So so we're the headquarter of PHRN, Population Health Research Network. Yeah. And so that's the only WA-based headquartered um, NCRIS facility. And so uh, Merrin and the team there are mm -hmm. uh, doing a lot in terms of making sure that those data linkages occur, but also interacting with various government um, departments um, and holders of data to make sure we have uh, a modern system yeah. to be mm -hmm. able to access and securely transfer and work on data with all the, um, you know, the issues of privacy, de-identified data, secure data. Mm -hmm. So we're really fortunate that that's actually headquartered here in WA because mm -hmm. they're doing a fantastic job that's of national significance, but also... Um, interacting with international best practice as well. So um, it's, it's an important exciting. area and there's <laughs> still a lot of work to be done in yeah, that area yeah. definitely. for health. Yeah, I, th I think the, the bureaucracy has been probably the biggest challenge around mm. that because we were sort of leaders early on, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
and then our slowly uh, the rest of Australia yeah, has caught up. <laughs> and I know that the data linkage branch at the moment is undergoing quite a big structural change and rejig, and they're sort of splitting the um, the technical support side from the um, customer service side and okay. whatnot. So hopefully that'll lead to some more efficiencies and mm. yeah, yeah, and the power of finding new trends from those data sets is just so um, important oh, as, as we ask new questions yeah. and explore old ideas in new in new ways. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think that Western Australia should be really proud of is, for example, the RAIN study. Mm-hmm. That oh, yeah. um, longitudinal data is mm. just so valuable. Yeah. And that was, again, something that was started by you know, researchers here mm. at UWA um, that continued that. I think it's now 30 years. It is. It just turned 30 last year. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. Um, <laughs> they were on the podcast. Yeah, we had them for their 30th <laughs> oh, yeah. good. on here. Yeah, yeah. it's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it's such a valuable data set, such a, a brilliant concept to have that mm. longitudinal yeah. study. And again, I think a good example of collaboration in Western Australia where that's now opened up to mm. um, researchers at other organisations because mm. the, val- the data is so valuable. We need to share and make sure that we extract the maximum value from those data. And yep. and the um, the continuous goodwill and engagement of the RAIN study um, contributors, the participants, is just mm-hmm. really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Again, I think shows the spirit, I think, of community in Perth, yep. that they a large number of them have engaged for such a long period of time mm-hmm. and that the kids are now having kids. Yes, right. Uh, and so we look forward to see how that develops in the in the future. Yeah. Yeah, and an- another study which our school was heavily involved in, which is ongoing, is the Bustleton Health Study. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many participants. It's in the thousands, I think. Yeah, it but is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yes, Bustleton's also good to acknowledge. Um, and then more mm. recently, Origins, I think that's yeah. something that TKI, I think, and that's right. others yeah. have been working on. So, that, so there's, yeah. that's something that I think is really a fantastic asset for the people of Western Australia, but also for the scientists to to understand um, yeah. trends which you just can't uh, get to unless you have those sorts of data sets. Absolutely. Yeah. I think ICRA as well, yes. um, International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, mm-hmm. um, they're producing, they're going to be producing so much data mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. that is switched on. I mean, already in all the test cases that they're doing and all the work they're doing on data science, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're at the forefront internationally on data science, but there's a real challenge there for um, mm. that facility to be able to capture and, and store and process such huge volumes of data. Mm. And again, I think it's great for Western Australia that the state government um, and uh, the two universities, UWA in partnership with Curtin, mm-hmm. um, it's a joint venture um, to make sure that ICRA, uh, you know, all the precursor work and um, we're getting ourselves positioned well to have a successful, mm. um, uh, well, continue the su- su- success of radio astronomy and yeah. astronomy and data, big data here in, in mm. WA with the Pawsey yeah. supercomputer. Such I mean, a huge yeah. thing for Western Australia. It yeah. is, yes. Yeah. Mm. So obviously the the climate's changed a lot in the last uh, seven or eight months. I guess it was around March that we really started noticing yeah. how 
um, teaching was delivered differently at UWA and staff were working from home a bit more and that sort of thing and more obviously computers and yeah, microphones and and less webcams. less international students able to come mm-hmm. due to restrictions etc and you're, you're talking about a lot of really great initiatives and, and projects how do you see them being supported going forward given our kind of restraints that we you know budget restraints and whatnot that we have going forward yeah, so you're referring to the COVID um, yeah. situation. I try not to use the word too much. <laughs> it seems to be <laughs> overused, but yeah, this is exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah, so uh, it had a big impact on how we deliver what we deliver. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the UWA students and staff have done a great job to be able to continue the momentum of their learning and um, the delivery of education in what has been a challenging year. Mm. Of course, we've also been really fortunate that um, we didn't have the level of infections and we didn't have community transmission. So that's also um, been fortunate for us. But we do unfortunately have a number of our students who are still offshore that haven't been able to come. Mm -hmm. So that transition to online has also supported those students mm-hmm. um, to be able to continue their learning um, whilst they're offshore and other support mechanisms have been put in place as well. So moving forward, um, you know, I think we need to be conscious of the fact that we still do have students who are offshore, so we do need to make sure we can cater to them as well as our students who are here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that blended learning um, mm-hmm. models, I think, will continue. Um, there's clearly a financial impact um, from mm. COVID, mm. but that's a, a trap we, we're hoping. <laughs> mm-hmm. And did you see there was some announcement today on the new vaccine? That yes. Oh, yes, the 90%, the 90% effective. Yeah, so yes. we'll see. We, we yeah. Still some time off. That, that yeah. one's really interesting, actually, because the title says it's 90% effective, and then when you read all the articles, they're like, it might be 90% oh, effective. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, by the time this episode goes out, we'll hopefully have a bit more peer review yeah. kind of information. information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's yeah. definitely positive steps in that yeah. pathway. Yeah. But we're, but we're planning that this, you know, that this is a, a transient um, issue, and that Mm-hmm. We hope that because of the the strength of the um, the work that's been done by the staff and the um, the way that students have embraced that ongoing learning, that we can then just bounce back from from mm-hmm. COVID when it's possible to do that. Yeah. yeah. Do you, Do you think that we could improve on our online learning stance? I guess because my personal opinion is that online learning is not necessarily the best way to learn things. I feel like you have to have that underlying motivation to learn, whereas um, I know a lot of people, they prefer to go to class because if you force yourself to get into a car and then go to class, you may as well learn, whereas online learning, it's like you just go to your desk and then, you know, there's Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all those other things. So... Do you think there is a way that we could improve our online learning so there is more motivation to focus and learn? Um, I think I think in general that interaction that you're talking about is important. Mm. So so I think we can make the materials which are online better because of course you know that had to all be done very quickly and there mm-hmm. is a lot of work happening to make sure that you know that we have continuous improvement. But I think we need to make sure we engage um, peer to peer. That gets lost if yeah. if you're not in the same area at some stage. So that blend um, for the people who are able to come to campus of coming to campus, you know, doing lab classes, 
um, doing tutorials, going mm-hmm. on field trips, all those things is just so important. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of learning peer-to-peer as well as um, uh, that direct interaction with the, the academic or the, the, the lecturer. So I think in the online space, we need to make sure we're able to have those those opportunities for that direct interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just a passive delivery of information. There has to be the the questioning, the discussion, the opportunity to explore ideas. Um, I've attended some um, workshops where there's been really effective use of breakout groups um, where small groups would share and discuss information. And I think it comes back also to the people wanting to participate in that. So some people participate, some people cameras are turned off, <laughs> makes it harder to participate. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we're all getting used to, we're just getting used to that and we're learning. But I, I agree, we need to have those other um, deeper interactions about mm. ideas, knowledge sharing, because that's when we really learn. Yeah, because yeah. the technology is actually there to do a lot of these things. It is. But a lot of people don't know how to use them mm-hmm. other than to sit in front of the camera and talk. They don't know that you can break out into yeah. a private room or, yeah. you know, take a poll. You can take a straw poll, you know, yeah. quickly by asking a certain question, um, all these sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and the other feedback I've heard is that some, I mean, students have a different life now than obviously when I was a student. <laughs> we didn't have yeah. Twitters. Yeah. <laughs> And they, there has been feedback that the flexibility and to be able to, and that's always been there when we were recording lectures, right? Yeah. That some students um, learn in different ways. They enjoy being able to just have the capacity to look at a lecture and maybe slow it down, reverse it, relook at it, mm-hmm. uh, look at it when it suits them based mm-hmm. on their employment that they've got. So there's all these different pressures these days. Um, so I think that flexibility in delivery is also important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like that's been a, a really big advance that's been forced upon us, but mm. it's happened, yeah. which is good. Yeah. I mean, I, I can remember, um, it wasn't that long ago, it was only a few years ago, um, <laughs> teaching a lab class and, and, and there was a couple of students in this lab class that were just so enthusiastic about, many students were very <laughs> enthusiastic. There's a couple that were particularly yeah. so enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, I, you know, you're always so engaged in the labs, but I never see you in lecture. Um, and they just said, well, I prefer to be able to listen once it's recorded online, mm. do it when it suits my schedule, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not you know, distracted by others when I'm learning about it. I yeah. just learn more when, I, when I'm mm-hmm. just able to do that when I'm ready to do it. And I just said, oh, okay, that's great. And that's, you know, mm. it's just a different style, and different people have those different styles, mm. so we need to cater to that. Yeah. Oh, very good. Mm. And um, one thing I wanted to ask is it come up before. You've been here since '95, did you say? In your as a sort of a teacher, a lecturer. Yes. Or, yeah. Okay, so we're talking 25 years now. Um, <laughs> I actually enrolled at uni the first time back in '97 here, and never completed, and went off and did other things, and was too young to study. Yeah. Uh, in hindsight, I was two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, and I wasn't a child prodigy. I wasn't sort of six years old or anything at university, but. Um, <laughs> What's, what are the things that you've seen change in that 25 years the most uh, at UWA? Obviously being one of, I think, the oldest university in Western Australia and one of the eight kind of, you know, well-established ones across Australia. Yeah, well, what are the, the biggest things you've, you've observed? That's a, that's a very interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so I, I've observed it 
as a student, so I was a student here, um, 86 was okay. when I was yeah. a first year student. Um, and what I have observed is the continued enthusiasm um, for people to, to, to achieve something and take opportunities. That's, I think to me that's what UWA um, presents to people, whether they're a student or a staff member. There's opportunities, to, opportunities to learn something new, opportunity to, you know, to develop your knowledge, get a degree and get a job, um, opportunities to follow a new research direction or to meet someone who's of a different opinion to you and you end up collaborating with them. So there's just many opportunities. And that, I think, is, is something that has been constant through the time here when I was a student. And then as a staff member, you realise as you've been here a bit longer and a bit longer, the numbers of opportunities that there are um, to do things differently, to go and, if you're a plant physiologist, go and collaborate with an animal scientist or an electrophysiologist from medicine or wherever, mm -hmm. um, as an example. Um, in terms of uh, the changes, there is a real change in the way um, you know, students learn, um, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, uh, when I first was um, lecturing in 95, um, you know, lecture halls were full. Mm. Um, uh, we weren't recording lectures. Uh, when we first started recording lectures, I felt that was a good thing because it did give, the f if someone was sick, they could hear the lecture. Mm. If someone wanted to re review it, they could hear the lecture. Um, or if they wanted to, to choose how they allocated their time because of work responsibilities or parental responsibilities mm. or all sorts of other things in their life, mm. they then had the flexibility to manage their time more efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, when was that introduced? It's been going for quite a long time, but yeah. it was it was it was introduced sort of uh, more in some areas than others in terms of um, how quickly it was adopted. Yeah, because mm -hmm. when I in my first year, which was two thousand eleven, so that's my first year of undergrad, um, I do remember that there were some people that refused to record lectures even then. So like I didn't know how long it had been going before then, but yeah, even mm. in two thousand eleven, people were like did not want to record because they're like, you're going to learn, you have to be here to learn it, um, which that's is now, really interesting. That's now changed? I, yes, it has now changed. Yeah, I don't know anyone right, that yeah. doesn't record. So, yeah. but, but, but that was quite a cultural change, I yeah. think, um, in, terms of, in terms of having that flexibi mm. flexibility in learning and also um, having those materials available um, for those different reasons. Yeah. Um, so that was a change. Um, I think we also... Uh, started using a lot more case studies in, in how we were teaching. We tried to put a lot more into context. Mm. Um, so I can remember when I was a student, you know, you, know, you, you should learn this physics because it's going to be important for you when you are in third year or you mm -hmm. should learn this maths because you are going to use it. Um, and that sort of changed, I think, to for the better, for people who are interested in more applied um, yeah. fields. Um, that it was mm -hmm. a clear context of mm -hmm. this is what you're learning, this is an example and an application. Um, and so that, I think, also was a, a good step forward. Mm. Um, uh, there's been some other changes uh, in terms of you know, resourcing, I guess, of um, field trips and mm. lab work has always been um, important, I think, to have some field trips and mm -hmm. um external experiences and, and there's been a lot of work to make sure that can still happen 
although there was some consolidation. So I think yep. they were probably the main changes in the education area. Mm -hmm. um, in in the as a staff member, I think uh, the the changes have been that there's a lot more um, opportunity, I think, to interact with colleagues from other disciplines. Yeah. The yeah. departments were quite small, uh, very specialised, and then they became um, schools which were broader. Um, and I think that's also a good thing because that mm -hmm. uh, opportunity for multidisciplinary research mm -hmm. is really important. So that, yeah. that would be the other thing I think that's changed. Having lived through the, the recent or semi-recent renewal process that happened, um, have you noticed a big change in how your, your work is, your, I guess, the demands on you or where your time's spent and what roles you, you know, you're, you're doing? So as an academic in a school, mm. um, I didn't notice a big change okay. um, uh, that I was in the school of plant biology at that time. Um, yep. I guess the change has been that that school um, no longer exists. It was um, merged with uh, the School of Animal Science. Okay. So to make a school of biological sciences, okay. um, there's some strength in that because there's you know, population genetics, mm -hmm. things you can learn from an animal population mm -hmm. geneticist and a plant population geneticist, mm -hmm. for example. Um, conservation biology, you, know, you don't just conserve the animals yeah. you conserve their habitat mm -hmm. um, and which are plants and vice versa you know the animals are interacting with the plants so that mm -hmm. that opportunity um and then some of that school also became a school of agriculture um and environment so some of the cropping agricultural yeah. people uh were in a new school with the soil scientists and the ag economists and some of the geographers mm -hmm. um because there's lots of commonalities there so i think that's an example of I guess what changed was there was that broader perspective yeah. to, to what a plant scientist could do and we weren't interacting with only other plant scientists. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And have, have you had feedback about, I mean, because I'm asking you because you've known the university for a long time and, and the processes um, and so you would have, you'd have a pretty good perspective on before and after. Um, and like, have you had any feedback about, because we're probably, what are we, three years after that happening now? Um, so, yeah, so the, the feedback I've heard is that that process took quite a long time. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was a long process and the main feedback I've heard, um, and uh, for me, I was doing what I was doing and enjoying what I was doing. Yeah. Um, uh, but the feedback is that it was a long process, mm -hmm. took some time to reorganise things. Yeah. Um, it also, uh, we had the Be Inspired positions. Yep. Um, so there was new introduction of new um, professors mm -hmm. uh, into this into the universities. Um, there was quite a lot of excitement about um, some of those new positions mm -hmm. that brought new ideas yep. um, into the university. Mm. Wait, so what actually happened? <laughs> I'm very confused. <laughs> you, right probably, now. <laughs> you probably would have been a student. Yes, like I an was. MPH. I didn't. Yeah, I would have been doing my, yeah. my masters. Um, yeah, so, so, so I was not. Uh, looking into the news of restructuring of universities, I was yeah. doing my degree. <laughs> so it was called a renewal rather than a restructure, wasn't it? Because they didn't want to, you know, right, the connotations yeah. of a, a restructure yeah. um, to kind of give a negative impact or put it in a negative light. Mm -hmm. But from my understanding, it was a real consolidation of admin services. So oh, they were more okay. centralised. Yeah. And then there was, so there, were, there was a loss of some, I guess, professional staff and admin staff. And then... As part of that, 
some of that money that was saved was used to, like you said, recruit some higher profile mm. senior academics mm -hmm. into the Be Inspired roles. And okay. we, we have a global health expert at yeah. our school now. That makes who, sense. Who's yeah. one of them. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, so you're right. At the school mm. level, there was also that um, move from individual units managing uh, budgets to a service delivery centre mm. to help manage budgets and, um, and HR and other aspects. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, Faculty, faculty service delivery centres. Yeah. And I'll be interested to see how close we go back towards that sort of more autonomy <laughs> for the schools now that we're, the faculty layer has sort of been removed and schools potentially are going to be more responsible for their own individual budgets or... Uh, so, yeah, so there's currently a consultation period. <laughs> so I think any ideas and suggestions are welcome from across the university. Yeah. Um, uh, but but definitely the the idea is that um, the schools uh, there'll be more of a direct connection to schools and mm -hmm. that um, there's more budget um, decision making where the teaching the research happens mm -hmm. which happens in schools yeah. um, of course research happens also in institutes mm -hmm. I mean that is another change um, I mean the Institute of Agriculture is a foundation institute. But um, Oceans Institute, for example, yep. has been another change which really has brought together um, multidisciplinary research mm -hmm. engineers, um, oceanographers, biologists, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and econ economists and social scientists. Yep. Those sorts of things are really fantastic, I think, mm. in terms of generating new ideas and new opportunities for, mm. for research. Yeah. And I guess a lot of this has been done to position us in the, in the global kind of um, sector as well. So, uh, you know, the, we were looking at the sort of countries that are around the Indian Ocean and looking to sort of develop our partnerships with them and their universities and whatnot. So, yeah, post-COVID, it'll be interest, interesting to see how that sort of plays out. We can travel yes. again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've got, you know, some really strong, so really strong international partnerships in research. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at the proportion of international co-authors on papers, UWA is right up there in terms of the group of eight, okay. um, if not at the head, at the front mm -hmm. um, of, of that metric. Um, those are co-authorships with traditional partners, um, but we also, in terms of you know, Europe and mm -hmm. um, you know, other, other people that we collaborate with, US, Europe, UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but also there is a lot of work, for example, again, in agriculture, collaboration with our neighbouring countries. Um, Seeds of Life is a, a really fantastic program and the ACR-funded project um, that if you're interested in, it's a, uh, about food security for East Timor okay. um, or Timor-Leste, sorry. Yeah. And um, yeah. uh, it, it, you have a look on the web. It's just amazing the impact mm. that that research has made and the, the collaboration that ha occurs in that sort of work. Yeah. So we do want to make sure that we're collaborating with um, yeah, Indian Ocean Rim mm -hmm. and um, doing that uh, in, a, in a mutually beneficial way, mm. research and research training. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. It gives us a bit of optimism for the future, I think, at a time yeah. when a lot of people may not be that optimistic. So, yeah, it's yeah. good to hear. It's also very fascinating as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the great thing about being a researcher, I think. You... you you have a hypothesis, an idea about how something works. Often you think about what difference that can make in the world mm -hmm. if you end up pursuing and understanding and get generating new knowledge. 
how that can be applied. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's just basic knowledge. Mm -hmm. Someone else thinks down the future about how you can make use of that. Yeah. And you may never have anticipated. Yeah. But isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Because, mm. you know, it's all building together to a better future for the world. And I think mm. um, what COVID has done is I think in Australia at least, it's really highlighted the importance of health scientists, mm. of mathematical modelers, you know, being able to make evidence-based decisions um, around how we managed uh, yep. COVID, and, and that's mm -hmm. what we should also be doing for other things that we have to deal with, which are complex questions mm -hmm. in society. That's right. Yeah, there's plenty of examples of where it's been handled well and handled badly, and we'll be able to learn from all of them. So yeah, yeah as long as we learn from them, that's yeah, what's that's important. That's the main thing. Yeah. In, some t in some cases, that seems to have not happened. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll find out in another 100 years when there's another pandemic yeah. whether we've learned from it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I think on that note, we'll, we might wrap things up. I think but, so. Yeah. Really appreciate your time, Tim. Well, thanks for the chat. It was, yeah. it was fun to, to well, see you again yeah. and meet you both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's been thanks. a fascinating conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah, and although I feel like, because you, your research is very, like, basic science and all that kind of stuff within plants, there's still, there's always an impact on public health um, yeah. that you can find in most research and those those interactions between fields is always so important. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, it's all aiming at improving the world and the people's yeah. lives within that world. So, yeah. Anyway, right. thanks very much. Thank Tim. you. Thank you. And that was our conversation with Professor Tim Colmer. Yeah, it was super interesting. I uh, am just still surprised at the fact that plants have snorkels and I find that weird and it kind of reminds me of like elephants um, because they use their nose as a snorkel. Uh, <laughs> so uh, very interesting information I think overall and the fact that we can relate it to food security and, and feeding the world as well is yeah. really important. Yeah, I think the information, like the, the sort of research we're talking about that we can adapt certain species of plants you know, to grow in places where they might not normally grow. That's a huge thing for, for some of the regions in the world that haven't been able to support themselves with food traditionally. So. Yeah, and particularly in Australia um, where I think all of us know some information about uh, salt coming to the top of the ground and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We know that salt is a problem here and lack of water is a problem here. So uh, being able to adjust plants to grow in those areas is sounds like a great thing yeah and so yeah the work tim's doing and his team are doing it's really important yeah in driving that process and hopefully will benefit uh outside of australia as well mm -hmm. our neighbors and whatnot um but yeah so this was actually our last episode with a guest for the year that's it yeah, yeah. so we are going to be coming back next year um, and we may produce a christmas special like we did last year we're thinking about it we're waiting for some articles to to come up that are funny and entertaining <laughs> yeah and possibly might just do a bit, bit bit of a recap on the year and some yeah. of the guests we've had on we've had some pretty interesting guests on that means i have to remember who we've had on yeah that might be tricky for me <laughs> that, that'll be your homework yeah that'll be my homework i have to re-listen to all of the episodes <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we'll look forward to that um so yeah we'll probably will speak to you one more time before christmas so yeah. we won't wish you a happy christmas and new year and holiday season just all yet stuff. Yep. um but yeah in the meantime take care and we look forward to speaking with you soon Thank you.
Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Thank you.